What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of teen writing, adventure novels, and the importance of art. Our first guest is author Penny Kittle, and we'll discuss how to help teens write. Next, we'll talk with author Matt Kirby about his book series, The Dark Gravity Sequence. Finally, we'll chat with Randy Evanson, a professional storyteller about arts education in schools. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of Mr. Minuscule and the Whale and learn about a library on wheels. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. One of the most ever-present forms of poetry is the haiku. This simple form is one of the most used in schools, and I'm sure that most everyone has taken their hand to writing one at one time or another. Traditionally, this form, which contains three lines with 17 syllables written in a 5-7-5-syllable count pattern, is also a favorite of authors of poetry for children. A book of haiku I enjoy is Gaiku, A Year of Haiku for Boys by Bob Raska and illustrated by Peter Reynolds. This book is a simple exploration of boys in nature that captures real experiences throughout a year in wonderfully crafted haiku. Another fun book of haiku is Haiku by John Muth, which is about a panda named Ku. So you'll note that the title of the book is saying hello to the panda and is not saying the name of the poetry form. It's H-I space Ku. Hi, Ku. I love the character of Ku and how each of the poems uses the poetry form to weave in the alphabet, the seasons, and the adventures of Ku and his friends. But if these great books are not enough, there are other great books that explore haiku and use the form to tell all kinds of interesting stories. A great example of this is Lee Wardlaw's book, Wonton, A Cat Tale Told in Haiku. This tale of connected haiku poems tells the story of a cat from the time it is adopted at the shelter until it settles into its new home. This is really connected haiku at its best because each poem keeps the form intact, but each poem then connects to the whole story. Another very innovative application of haiku is Chris Crow's novel, Death Coming Up the Hill. This novel in verse is constrained by syllable count as the main character, Ash, recounts his perceptions of the Vietnam War, not only by writing haiku, but also dedicating one syllable to each of the soldiers killed in the deadliest year of the war. So the book contains 976 haiku with 16,592 syllables, which is the number of soldiers killed in Vietnam in 1968. So if our chat here at Rachel's World has made you eager to look up a little bit of poetry to spice up your day, you may want to take time to check out these and other great books filled with haiku. Rachel's World. 
The ability to express oneself and be heard is an essential part of being human. This need for self-expression can be especially high during the teenage years. One great way to express oneself is through the writing process. Today, we have on the phone Penny Kittle, an author and a great advocate for helping our teens engage in writing. Welcome, Penny. Thank you. Good to be here, Rachel. I am so glad to have you here today. Penny, to start out, let, let's let talk a little bit about how you view writing as part of the literacy process of teens' development. So tell us a little bit about why do you think becoming a good writer and becoming conversant in the language of writing and all the ways we write in schools is important for our teens? Well, I think they're hungry to express who they are. Often the kids that I meet want to be heard, and they want you to understand why they believe what they believe, and they want to say it well. And they're, you know, awash in media. They're watching great YouTube videos. They're watching late-night TV. They're, they watch people speak with a great command and clarity, and they want that for themselves, but they're not sure how to get there. So how do we help them get there is the question. What, what do we need to start with? What are some basics that we need to start with to help getting our teens to that level of development? Yeah, I think the first thing we have to remember is that writing is a process, and it's not like a lot of the other content area that we teach in school in that it's not a discrete set of skills that you master and you're done with. You know, there's a, a movement to make things competencies. So I'm competent in writing narrative, for example. But if you change and ask me to write, you know, if you change the topic and ask me to write about something that's very difficult for me to tell the story of, I'm all of a sudden not very competent in narrative. I'm struggling. I'm grasping at how do I maintain this big idea throughout these scenes that I'm crafting. So I think we have to remember that students are on a lifelong long journey to reach um, these pieces of writing that they want to share with the world, to be able to reach that place where they say, this is what I meant. And so as teachers, we need to set up conditions in our classrooms that nurture writers. And all of writing is built on a volume of reading. That's where we learn what writing sounds like, what makes it good, what appeals to us. And so whatever I'm teaching, if it's argument, I'm collecting the best arguments I can find that are cohesive and coherent and will teach my students the moves that writers make to transition from one idea to the next to bring that writing to a crescendo at the end so that you feel like, yes, I agree. And what I've done in um, my work for years is have one piece that we repeat throughout the year, digital in nature so that students are composing in a different medium. There's lots of pen and paper. There's lots of writing notebooks, my favorite thing, everyday writing. But then I also ask them to move to another genre and try on digital platforms. So describe that a little bit more for us. What does that look like with your students and what kind of outcomes do you get? Well, so we begin with um, several, I call them laps around the track. So you might write a scene and then many scenes and then a story told from multiple narrators. Those are laps around the narrative track that are increasingly complex. 
And then I always have a digital component. So at the end of those three laps, my students created mini documentaries. You're going to tell the story of someone else in our community, but you're going to do it in a digital platform. So you're going to have video, you're going to have photographs, you're going to have text slides, you're going to choose music, and you're going to create an introduction to this person, tell their story. And so you've now moved them outside of simple pen and paper to the work that helps them analyze all that media that they are always consuming, but often not analyzing. Because as soon as I'm creating something like a public service announcement when we study argument, I now understand that the commercials I'm watching and the political um, you know, commercials that come on are all crafted with a particular intent. The music is chosen, the slides and the voiceover and the images, black and white or color, all of that is crafted for a particular effect. And we want our students to not only understand that, but to create that so that they can feel all the decisions that go into crafting writing. As you talk, I really appreciate how you contextualize writing really more broadly than I think some people might expect. You really are contextualizing it in in a wide range of literacies. So critical literacies, information literacies, media literacies, all of these kinds of things. And you see writing as something that isn't just words on paper, pen on paper, but also how we communicate. So how do you bring those other elements in that makes this more about communicating ideas with the world in a wide range of formats from stories to arguments and helping your teens see those differences in all of those different forms of communication? Well, for one, you know, writing is a central piece in every class I teach. And this fall, for example, I asked my students to do voice recordings of a place. So they were going to describe a place, but they were going to model their voice recording off of what people do in podcasts. So sometimes there's creepy music and a sense of a very slow voice because they're trying to create an atmosphere of fear and they're going to tell you a ghost story, right? So helping kids understand that how you speak can impact what people understand about your topic. And so it isn't just sitting down and reading it, but rather how we learn how to read it. And what my students do is they go out and and they create a script, and then they'll realize that they're kind of varying from their script as they get more comfortable, but they end up recording, deleting, recording, deleting, because they want it to sound a particular way. And they get a lot of practice that way in listening really carefully to how podcasts are created and recreating the feel of that in their own work. Just goes to show how interconnected all of our literacies are. You have to read, to write, to speak, to listen. All of those things come in one great whole. Tell us a little bit about the response you get from your teens as they're working on some of these projects. What, what are some of the things that they say to you that they feel like they're learning or some of those aha moments that they have as they're developing these wonderful projects? Yeah, you know, like, I, I'll just give you one kid from this fall. She was um, started out, she wanted to tell the story of losing her father. She was about three years old when he died in a um, an accident cutting wood. And she started by telling what she remembered of him. And then she said, I want to tell my twin brother's point of view, and I'm going to interview my mom and get her point of view, and then his best friend and then at the, about four weeks into this writing, she said, I've got one more point of view to do. 
the John Deere um, tractor he was driving that wow. day. I want the tractor to tell a piece of the story. And what would that look like? And so we began to look at how do you personify an emotion how to, in an, you know, an inanimate object? And how do you imagine what that tractor was thinking when your father had this accident? And, you know, it, if you think about it, it's not just a memorial to her father that she misses, but rather this chance to be creative and thoughtful about how she was going to tell that story. And she's working in a writing group, so the writing group is listening to what she's doing and giving her feedback. And, of course, that response is good for Taylor, but the idea of what it ignites in them as they listen to three other kids that are struggling in the same genre to tell an important story, and now they're imagining that their stories could be transformed by the moves these other kids are making. Using groups like that, I think, is such a really interesting strategic goal for you. Is that something you do quite frequently? Do you use groups and feedback to help the students better their writing? Yes. And part of it is because response has been so important to me as a writer. I know that there's, you know, this Peter Elbow idea that you're always looking to see if there's a reader out there at the end of your line that gets what you're trying to say. That's so important. Did you hear me? Did you understand? And so it's important that kids get a lot of response and they get response in the midst of composing so they can use that response. And so the, the format is that my students come to writing group with a question. I'm writing this and I'm wondering this. And then the other students listen to what the writer wants, look at their work, and offer that feedback. And we set up a, you know, a, a, a system of a writing group that stays together for the entire semester we're together so that they get used to working with each other on their writing. And then we also, this last year, sent our drafts via email to kids in Kelly Gallagher, my co-author's classroom in Anaheim, California, so that kids in... New Hampshire were getting feedback on their writing from kids in L.A., and then they were sharing some of what they were thinking on Flipgrid, which is a video platform that the kids could use to just directly give each other feedback. We noticed right away as teachers that some of our students were saying more on video to kids they didn't know about writing than they were able to articulate in class, and I think that that's a sense of how they've changed as people who use media a lot. You know, it's easier and more comfortable for them to record a video than it was to sit knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye, and give that feedback in class. But certainly practice in giving that feedback would help them develop that eye-to-eye part in class. That is such an amazing example of true learning and deep education that both you and Kelly are engaging in. Tell us, as we close our conversation today, what you hope that these experiences and these writing experiences will look like in the future for your students. What, what do you hope they're going to grow into? What, what, is the, what does the future look like? Yeah, more than anything, I want students to leave my class confident and empowered, and lastly, independent, so that they don't feel like they need to wait for me to tell them what to write or how to write, but rather they see their world as a writer would. They see that I've got a story to say about that. I actually don't like what's happening in my town, and I want to write a letter to the editor about this. And then they would know where to go to find mentor texts that they could study to learn how to write and to have a voice in our democracy, in their town, in their school in their workplace. Um, I think it's just such a powerful gift to have a kid leave knowing 
that they can describe themselves as a reader who likes these genres or these authors and can continue to read without anyone's help, and that they can leave knowing that what is most important to them, what they really want to share with the world, they have a way to do that. And they feel confident that they can do it well. Bravo. I wish that we had every teen in the whole world be able to have those two basic literacy elements of them leaving school and being able to come into adulthood with those skills. We would have a strong, strong world <laughs> if we if we had those. So I am so excited that you are advocating for that. And thank you for sharing your passions with us today to help our teens be better writers and to impact the world through their own voices. Thank you so much, Penny. You're welcome. And now go write your life and share. Penny Kittle is a teacher and author. Now it's time for story time with a book review of Mr. Minuscule and the Whale by Julian Tewim. Today, I'm going to tell you about a picture book I came across in my travels to Poland called Mr. Minuscule and the Whale by Julian Tuwim and illustrated by Bodan Batenko. Mr. Minuscule was a tiny little man who was only half the height of a coffee bean. He loved to explore and had already seen all that he wanted to from the world. Everything, that is, except a whale. He was fascinated with the idea of something so big. And so he built a boat out of a walnut shell and set sail in search of a whale. He sailed and sailed, but after two whole months, he still hadn't found a whale. At last, he saw an island, and exhausted as he was, decided to rest there for a bit. He unpacked his things and began setting up his tent, when all of a sudden the island sneezed? It sneezed again, and then roared, Now what's all this about? What silly fool would pitch his tent atop a whale's spout? Frightened, Mr. Minuscule said goodbye, hurried off the whale, and rushed back to the harbor as fast as he possibly could. He had finally found a whale and hadn't even known it. And now, if anyone stops to ask if he's ever seen a whale, he says, with nose up in the air, more than just its tail. This book is a wonderful example of Polish culture. Originally written in Polish and translated many years later into English, the book maintains a certain style of storytelling that may be unfamiliar to most Americans. It is detailed and to the point, while still maintaining a light-hearted feel that engages readers and is sure to make you laugh. The illustrations are simple, but complement the story perfectly, bringing the words to life. This book can be used to expose children to a culture and people different from their own. Often when we think about diverse books, we think about those from Hispanic, African American, or other minority group backgrounds within the United States. Mr. Minuscule on the Whale, however, is based on a culture that children here are likely to never interact with in person. And thus, this book can help provide them with an entirely new perspective on the world. Although this book is written in rhyme, the translator perfectly captured the essence of the original story, and each rhyme flows naturally. This book would be a great resource in the classroom for teaching about poetry and rhyme and diverse cultures, as well as a fun story to read aloud to students in its own right. This book would also be a wonderful one to have in any home to introduce children to other cultures. It is also a great story all on its own for bedtime or any other time. I love having this book in my personal library, and I hope you'll check it out and consider adding it to your own.
When an author writes a work of fiction, they create an entire world for the reader to dive into. That world can be grounded only in our reality, or it can break off to explore fantastical ideas, or even reimagine history. We're in the studio with author Matt Kirby to talk about a few of his books that play around with world building. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me back. All right. Let's chat about the Dark Gravity books. Let's. So, yeah. th- yes, and some of some of my favorites of your work. I love this kind of combination of mystery and adventure that you've got going here and such really strong, amazing characters, which you're good with in all of your books, but <laughs> well, thank these you. particularly as well. So to introduce our readers, maybe give us a little synopsis. Sure. So um, the Dark Gravity sequence takes place in the near future. It's not really specified, but it takes place in a world that is beset by an unexplained ice age that shows no sign of slowing down. So half of North America is covered in glacier as well as Europe. It's pushing populations out of those areas. The world economy has been turned upside down because now you can only grow food in certain places in the world. And those places are around the equator, which previously had been poor nations, and now suddenly they're finding themselves the only ones capable of feeding the rest of the world. Like, I mean, things are just really turned upside down. Um, and in that world, uh, we have Eleanor, whose mom is a researcher and goes missing in the Arctic, which is the most dangerous environment on the planet. And uh, Eleanor is determined to find her. And that's where the Arctic Code opens. And in the process of going looking for her mom, Eleanor uncovers a conspiracy and finds out not only the the source of this ice age, but also um, uncovers like this kind of cosmic threat uh, that that she then is determined to confront and save the world. Yay! Exciting. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. If you haven't, if yeah. you haven't read it yet, you're like, okay, yes, I'm yeah. right. I'm going to run out and get this right now. Yeah. But one of the things that is really interesting to me about this book is you've kind of hit hit on that age old kind of children's literature trope where you take a parent and you get rid of them and right. you say no parents involved, yeah. you know, and then you put the child in the forefront of it and you say, okay, child. Because you have no adults in the way, you now have to figure out the problem. Right. And you have to face these really perilous things. And and really, you know, this, this isn't just kind of like, oh, I'm going to cross the street. It's like, yeah, I've got to figure out how to get rid of this ice age, right? Right. These yeah. types of things. So why did you want to do that? I mean, why why put your heroine particularly in such peril and, and push her into making these kinds of grand choices about how she's going to discover the, the answers to what's ailing the world? You know, it's interesting. So there's, I, I'll, I'll I'll come to that question. Okay. <laughs> but what you just said reminded me of something that Neil Gaiman has said, uh, because he's been questioned about the dangerous situations in which his characters find themselves, like you know Coraline and Bod and uh, in Graveyard Book, and uh, it's particularly it's interesting because like when people ask him about it, he says it's always the grown ups who are afraid for the child. (laughs) He said, if you ask a child how they feel about that, they don't see a kid in danger. They see a kid 
finding their power and their strength. Like they see a character who's empowered that they want to be like. So it's interesting because the perception of a reader is often different from the adult looking back. And that's true of me even as yeah. I'm writing it. Um, so, so you know, that it is interesting to approach that when you think about that in kids in children's literature, like the readers don't see it in the same way we do as adults. That being said, in the case of Eleanor in the Arctic code, I sort of was given this situation because I, I don't know if we've talked about this before. I can't remember, but um, the last time I was in studio, but Harper Collins, the publisher, they approached me with this idea of the, the editor had read Icefall and I guess she thought, oh, he can do ice and he can do cold. Because they had this concept of a world in an ice age and they had this loose idea of this kid who goes looking for her mom who gets lost in the Arctic. Um, and they basically came to me and they said, what would you do with that? Like, well, how, what kind of story would you tell? And I asked them, well, what's causing the ice age? And they were like, well, that's up to you. Like, so, so I basically – I mean it was a core kernel of an idea – that kind of came from them, the publisher. And they were interested to see how I would interpret that. And I took it in a pretty wild direction. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anybody listening who hasn't read it yet, but I took it in a direction that I honestly thought, if I send this back to them, they're maybe saying, no, this isn't what we had in mind. Because it, 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 it diverges from, I think, their original idea. But the thing that I had to answer for myself... Because they had this idea of a child going and searching in the Arctic, like the most hostile environment, you know, on the planet for her mom. So I had to answer the question, what kind of kid would do that? That's That was how I found Eleanor. And I think her character, like when I really sort of kind of got to know her and met her, yeah, like she is the type of kid who would do that. Not every kid would. But she is the type of kid who would. And that's, I mean, those are the kind of kids we like to read about in stories that go on these adventures. But it wasn't something that I just assumed is self-evident. It was something that I said, no, this is a particular kind of kid who is a bit reckless and, you know, is aware of the danger, but is also not aware of the danger on some level. Like on some level kind of saying... I guess it's a type of confidence. Like I can do this. And I admired that about her. Cause I don't think I had that kind of confidence when I was her age. Definitely. Like I would not have been the kid going to the Arctic. That would not have been me as a yeah. kid. Uh, so I really admired Eleanor for that reason. Um, but I was aware of the trope that you're talking about at the same time. And that's why Eleanor and her, I mean, spoiler alert, like Eleanor and her mom are reunited in the first book. And then her mom is a presence with her for the next two books. Like the adults are in the picture. It, I didn't want to take that too far. That trope of the kid whose parent is missing. Um, it's definitely a part of the first book, but it's not a part of the overall story. And her relationship with her mom was really fascinating to me too, over the course of those three books. And that is one of the things I love about this sequence, these three books, is the relationship building you do. And, you know, again, spoiler alert, the you know, when she gets reunited with her mother and in the second and third book, as that 
relationship kind of develops and as they grow together, particularly after Eleanor has had this really unique experience without her mother and kind Mm -hmm. of reconnecting with her mother in that context. And then all of the people that kind of surround her as she has these experiences and moves forward, that that sense of building relationships and connecting with each other at a very human level Mm -hmm. seems to me to be a very strong theme in all of those books. Is that something that you were seeing too as you were writing? Absolutely. I and I think that's because I mean that's those kinds of relationships I think are things that I always go back to in all of my books. Like I'm fascinated by um I mean I'm a psychologist like by by training and I still work as a school psychologist um a few days a week. I I'm really fascinated by relationships and the way people negotiate um you know, I've heard I've heard a quote. You know, that relationships are a negotiation that never ends, and I that's really true. Like, um, and so as Eleanor and her mom, like they really do go through this thing together, and they have these ups and downs, and they have they come back together, and then their relationship breaks, and then they have to find a way forward, and um, and that's true of all the other figures in Eleanor's life as well. And I wanted to, like, there are several other adult characters who kind of become counterpoints. They give her another adult to maybe look up to, and they help Eleanor to realize, wait a minute, maybe my mom's way isn't the only way. There are other ways that might be valid. And, she, and so Eleanor has to think about that as she finds out and decides who she's going to be. Um, so yeah, no, that was definitely on my mind because that's what I'm always interested in that. Yeah. And that element that you talk about when um, when Eleanor and her mom kind of break and they, they, they become at odds, I guess mm-hmm. is, is a way to put it too. That was really fascinating to me because I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, when a relationship breaks or it gets hard, we stop the relationship right. or we get out of the relationship. And particularly in, in sometimes in this day and age, we get that sense of, oh, if it's too hard, we're going to quit. But the thing I love about that relationship is they work at it and they try to get through it and they develop a it's not the same relationship. It's a different relationship. It's a different, yeah, exactly. Which, which is about the growth that we have in all of our relationships. Yeah. And that, that sense of growth and development, even when it was hard, I, I think was a really timely element to that relationship building you did in the book. Thanks. Yeah. No, it's like I said, it's a negotiation. Like things happen in life and we learn things about each other. Um, or we see somebody do something that we didn't think they were capable of doing and they do it anyway. And suddenly we have to redefine that relationship in a way. Like we have to renegotiate, come back to the table. And it is easier sometimes to just let that relationship end um, rather than come back to the table and find a, a new way, like a new way of being in that relationship together and finding a way forward. Uh, and it does take commitment and it takes work. And I, I was really interested in that with Eleanor and her mom, for sure. And that is something I think that all readers will take from this book because it is one of those very distinct features of this book. And the the interesting thing to me is when you describe the book about you know about the Ice Age and all yeah. this stuff and all this conspiracy theories and stuff, you don't think at the very center of this book is going to be a wonderful, poignant story about a mother and a daughter relationship. So it it it's a very surprising element that I think it made me 
rethink and smile a little bit and say, oh, this oh. is wonderful. This adds just some wonderful depth Thanks. to the story. So thank you well, thank for you. creating a great set of books. <laughs> and if you haven't read that. them, even with all the spoilers we <laughs> yeah. gave today, if you haven't read them, go out there and read them because they're much more complex there, and even there with will those still, spoilers. Yeah, there will still be a lot of surprises. <laughs> lots, lots and lots of surprises on the horizon. Thanks so much, Matt. Matt Kirby is the author of The Dark Gravity Sequence and Icefall. Next, there are libraries all over the country, but some libraries have the fantastic ability to move from place to place. Let's listen to author Charlie Glenn share the story of Mary Lemus Titcomb, the creator of America's first mobile library. She was a woman who was very uh, driven. Uh, She had a particular vision and passion, and that was um, that she was driven by this philosophy that books were for everyone, not just the elite, not just men, not just those that lived in town, not just adults, but everyone. And so that's what drove her. But she had very little interest, obviously, in promoting herself. Her life was about promoting books and promoting this, uh, she called it the rural distribution of books. And the bookmobile was just sort of the culmination of that. There was very little um, information on Mary Lemus Titcombe. Uh, there were a couple of articles that had been published about her. There was an anemic little paragraph, uh, a Wikipedia paragraph, that um, as I started doing my research, I realized that they had pretty much everything wrong. (laughs) The birth date was wrong. The death date was wrong. And so most of this was really original groundbreaking research, which was incredibly exciting and incredibly challenging as well. It was actually her will that led me to uh, what turned out to be a treasure trove of information. And so I did the research and uh, and I found uh, what who I thought might be a grandson of this niece. His name was Rod Thomas. And I was able, you know, you can find out anything if you're good enough. If you're a good internet detective, I was able to find an email address for him. And I sent him an email just, you know, explaining who I was and what I was doing and asking if he indeed was a a descendant of, not of Mary, but of Mary's brother through this niece. And um, within a few hours, I had a response back. He lived in Vermont. I had a response back and, and he said, I bet you never thought you threw this out to the universe with great hope, probably never thinking that you'd get a response. But yes, you found me, and I am indeed the grandson of of the niece of Mary Lemus Titcombe. And he was, uh, I believe he's probably in his 70s, and um, he said, you know, I don't know a lot about... So he was a great-grand-nephew of Mary's. And he said, I don't know a lot about her, but I think up in the attic somewhere I've got a box. So let me pull that out. So he did, and he wrote back, and he said, I've got photographs. I've got pictures of her parents. I have pictures of her homestead in New Hampshire. I have newspaper articles. Anyway, it was really exciting. I asked if he would mind making some high-resolution copies of some of those things and sending them to me. And he said, I have no no idea how to do that. How about if I just send you the original stuff? And I was <laughs> like, oh, my goodness, you don't even know me. And yet you trust me with these 
precious, you know, papers and documents and photographs that are over 100 years old. And he did. He would mail me whatever he found, and I would make high-resolution copies and mail them back to Vermont. And so uh, many of the... uh, the postcard, for example, we have a postcard here signed uh, by Melville Dewey of the famous Dewey Decimal System, who uh, he had sent to Mary Lemmis Titcomb. Uh, we had, I found, um, I called through a lot of old newspapers in doing my research, and um, Mary was a happening woman. She was in the newspaper a lot because she was very involved, not just with the library, but in uh, in other civic affairs. She spoke often at, at club meetings and did a lot of entertaining, and uh, she was just extremely engaged in the community. So my motivation initially was just to... Um, to promote this woman that had done this remarkable thing. You know, the impact that she had on uh, on America's cultural landscape is really can't be overstated. Children learn lots of different things in school, from the circumference of a circle to the grammatical structure of a sentence. It's almost guaranteed that at any school, they will provide a significant education in math, science, and English. But not every school provides a dynamic arts program. We have in the studio today, Randy Evanson, an educator and professional storyteller. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. Okay, we are passionate about a topic that we share in this great passion, and that is arts education and including arts and arts literacy in our classrooms. So to start out, tell me, why do we need art? Sum it up for us. (laughs) I can sum that up quickly because arts, the arts tell us who we are. Yeah. You know, the way that we we uh, dance, the way that we uh, do drama or tell stories or the way that we paint, that identifies us. You can see a nationalistic kind of art all over the world. And there's a, there is a particular American uh, kind of art, and that helps us to learn to be who we are. That gives us the the reason to feel and to love if we don't have the arts, all of that is gone. It's It just becomes mechanical. Yeah, and it would be so sad. I just, I think you're right. The love and the passion and the emotion comes through the arts. One of the things I know as a teacher, you were really a strong advocate for having the arts in the classroom. So, so how did you incorporate the arts into your classroom? Well, you certainly, it takes a, a little bit more effort. You still need to teach the curriculum, but you can do the very same thing while you're doing it through art. If we, we read, we would read books, but then we would make a giant timeline and, and murals about the books that we did. So we're not throwing out reading and writing and math. We just are going to use art to extend that yeah. and to bring that love in to help them have a greater appreciation and a greater understanding of what the, the concept has been taught. 
You know, that's one thing I found without a doubt is that when, when we use art to express things, that we do have a greater understanding. And for me, you know, people say, oh, we don't have time to include art in the classroom. And I'm like, well, do away with like 10 of those worksheets that you did <laughs> and exactly. do one mural or one art project and you have increased your knowledge and understanding tenfold and and you found the time, right? So I, I I don't necessarily think that it's it's necessarily that you know we need to do the arts in addition. It's we need to use the arts in its strategic place right. that you've described. It needs to be integrated. Yeah. And a critical part of using the arts is not every child is strong academically. Yeah. And they, they we have a lot that will come that their body's just ready to move, or their body is they they understand uh, color and rhythm and things that are happening in the in the arts much better so it it gives an opportunity for everyone to excel in the classroom and it and it pulls on different kinds of learning styles and intelligences in that way and then it also gives everybody a chance to excel because i think one of the no matter who they are, because one of the things that I always hate is when people say, oh, well, I'm not an artist, right? Or exactly. I'm not creative or, you know, or, and it even hurts my heart when people say, oh, I'm not a scientist or I'm not a mathematician. And I'm like, how sad when we tell people something that they aren't, that they are not, when we <laughs> should be saying everybody is, is, right? Exactly. You know, and the reality is there's going to be some, but some people that have more skill, Um, and more knowledge in in an art form or in a discipline. And that's just natural, right? Because we're not all going to be, you know, famous Einsteins or, you know, famous ballerinas or anything like that. But that doesn't mean we all can't, yeah. The great thing about the arts is there is no wrong way to do it. Yes. There is no yes. wrong way. Yeah. In, in when you take math, there is there is a wrong there's way. a right and a wrong way. Yeah. You can yeah. come up with a yeah. wrong answer, yeah. and you can write a, a piece of uh, an essay, and it can be terrible. But there is no, there isn't yeah. a terrible yeah. in art or drama or dance. There isn't. It's just an expression. Yeah. Well, and I think there's one of those myths for me is the talent myth, right? It's like you have to be talented in order to do it. And I do think there is some some talent involved, right? There is some skill involved. But for most of that, it's not something you're innately born with per se. It's something you actually can develop through practice and understanding. It is a skill like anything else with a little practice. Most everyone can do very, very well. Yeah. Now, there are the few that are gifted and they come that way. But everyone else can be taught the skill, how to hold a a paintbrush and what to do with the paintbrush. And before you know it, you are really pleased with what you've produced. And I think part of that is, especially for kids, the hard thing is usually what we see is the finished product of art, right? Mm -hmm. We don't see all of the practice or all of the the pre-work that right. went into it, right? You know, we see a great Picasso and we don't realize the years and years and years he spent sketching and yes. drawing different kinds of things and all of that kind of stuff before he started drawing, right? That- well, all of the arts is, we need to look at it as a process. Yeah. There shouldn't very often be an end result that we're just looking at. All of it is a process and, and we'll, we're at this level today and next year we'll be at a whole 
different level. It's all a process. Yeah. And if you gain some foundational skills and knowledge about just kind of the foundational rules, the foundational Mm -hmm. understanding of of what the pieces are of the art, then it's easy to kind of take that and create and Mm -hmm. and grow as as an artist in that way. Exactly. You are an artist in one particular way. You are a storyteller, which is a uh-huh. wonderful form of art. So tell us a little bit about your journey. How, how have you kind of grown as an artist? What, what have you done to, to develop your talent? Well, I um, found that it was such an easy way to, to uh, use in school, to help with writing, to help with, with helping kids and, and I and one year I just challenged myself to tell them a different story every day. And after that happened, I thought, oh, wow, this is really quite fun. And then I thought, whoa, I think I'll audition for the Timpanoga Storytelling Festival. And I did that and was a part of that for many, many years. And then I retired and I thought, Oh, I'm missing the kids, <laughs> but I don't want yeah. to do parent-teacher conferences. I no. don't want to do testing. So I took one school and said, how would you feel about me coming in and just storytelling all day long in different classrooms? It was a fabulous experience. And the next year, I was doing three schools. And the year after that, I was doing eight schools. It has grown and grown, and I just go in now and tell stories and I have a ball. That is so all wonderful. day long. I think I, <laughs> you, I have you the do best what you job. Love. Yes. You do what you love. I love that. So when you tell stories to the kids, what what kind of stories do you tell? Tell it kind of My give us stories the range. are are personal stories, 98% of them. I know other storytellers can tell uh, fairy tales or um, stories about their culture, those don't fit for me very well. Mm-hmm. You have to find a niche where you fit yeah. real well. And I am just very comfortable telling a story about when I was the same age as you first graders. A, a lot, Most of the time, I don't choose a story until I walk in and get a sense or a feel for the class that I'm going to work with. I ask them a few questions, and then I can begin with the story. I can look around and see things that that are happening in the room and and know the kind of things they've been doing and what can relate to to them. And a lot of people say, have you written your stories down? And I say, no, I I do not plan to write them down because there's something magical about it just coming out of your head at the moment. And that's intriguing enough because it changes, I would assume, right? Oh, it it's does. Not, it's not always the same. It's, and that's the magic of that's it. That's the magic of not it, yeah. Always the it's same. not always the same. And it makes it, it makes it so you can personalize it for your audience uh-huh. and, and personalize it for yourself, right? Yes. Maybe make a different emphasis on what you're feeling or what, what thoughts are going on through your head at that time, which just makes it a wonderful kind of art form that's so... Yeah transitory I, that's not the right word but you know it just it has this wonderful mobility to it that it, it fits the time and purpose of the moment in yeah. such a wonderful way as you as you go to these schools and and tell your beautiful stories to these students what what is the response that you get what what do the students give back oh, to you y- you can hear a pin drop <laughs> when i am telling those stories 
and a lot of times I will have a whole grade level at a time, and people are astounded that they, I can have a hundred kids in there, and they're all extremely focused, and they're listening, and they're right on the edge mm-hmm. of their seats. It, it is so positive. Yeah. Every time I go to a school, they ask me, oh, please come back, please come back. Yeah. I, I usually do a whole school for uh, the school for an entire yeah. year. And then some of them I have switched and gone to other places, but it is such a positive thing. Well, I can't believe how much more positive it could be because I, I am so grateful for you to bringing the arts into our classrooms and hope our listeners out there will maybe start thinking about the arts in a slightly different way and maybe how they can maybe bring it into their own homes and their own families in a way that will connect them to the stories that they have. I hope so. I hope so, too. Thank you so much, You're Randy. welcome. Randy Evanson is an educator and storyteller. Now, join me around the librarian's table. Usually, I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. But today, we've mixed it up with two special guests who aren't librarians. Suzanne Scracken and Erica Ferguson are program coordinators for the Hogle Zoo in Salt Lake City, and they're here to talk about environmental literacy. Welcome, ladies. Thank, Thank you. you. You are employees at our local zoo, Hogel Zoo, and one of the things that you advocate for is environmental literacies. So helping kids and adults and everyone in the world just understand the natural world a little better. So to start off, tell us a little bit about why you think environmental literacies are important. Why, why do we need to understand about our natural world? So it, I think it's really important to understand literally what's going on around you because it's not separate from who you are. You're a part of it. And everything that we do has an impact on the natural world, whether it's whether or not we choose to recycle or whether or not we choose to pick up a piece of trash we see blowing past us in a parking lot when we go to the grocery store or even what purchases we make. So the more input that you have and the more information you have about how your choices impact the world around you, the more control you have over that. If you want to see the world be a better place, you probably have more control over that than you think. And having this environmental literacy helps people to be able to kind of take the reins and decide what kind of world they want to live in. When you state it like that, it feels so fabulously global and wonderful. And I love that our communities then take these things and put them in a little lovely little box that helps us kind of understand it at a more you know small level in our local communities. So one of the things you guys do is you talk to kids and you help them understand animals. So Erica, tell us a little bit about those experiences. What are what are some of the fun things that happen with the kids? Or what are some of the fun things you tell kids about these great animals? Yeah, well, um, a lot with kids is we kind of want to change sometimes their attitude towards animals. A lot of kids will sometimes have a fear of animals. And a great example is snakes. Um, I think a large majority of kids and adults have fears of snakes. So we actually bring ambassador animal snakes. Um, These are animals that we actually handle and the kids can touch. We bring them to class and um, teach the kids about snakes and show them that they really aren't as scary as we think and actually how important they are in their habitat. And so we find that, you know, after they meet a couple different snakes um, towards the end of camp, which is about a week long, um, they tend to have a different attitude towards them. They even start to see them as cute or pretty or beautiful. And that's exactly what we're looking for. 
I love that connection because it, it really is about some things we just don't know. Mm-hmm. If we haven't experienced, they're fearful or mm-hmm. hard for us. And, and sometimes we misunderstand them, right? We don't know the right thing. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, we um, we have a, a kind of a family nature club type of thing. We do outdoor adventures on the first Saturday of the month, every month. And before we started doing this, we were kind of looking into like, is there a need in the community to do this? And we did a survey of just our zoo members. Like how often do you go out into nature with your family? And, um, and if you don't like, why not? And like 8% of respondents said that they don't go out into nature because it's gross. Oh, <laughs> and and we're like, okay, we have we have work to do, and so we started doing these outdoor adventures. Or every month we go to a different place just nearby, so people, you know, a lot of people said we just don't know where to go. Where do you go? And so we go to city parks, and we go to state parks, and we just go into the mountains or up on a trail or something, and we just kind of give them a snapshot of what to do out there and getting more comfortable in nature and just having someone guide you through it. Like Erica's the one who does it. It's her Mm -hmm. thing. And um, having someone with you who is comfortable and does know that it's not dangerous and does know what that tree is called um, opens up this whole other world where once you become comfortable with it, then you want to spend more time there. And that for me is kind of my stock and trade, that information. And I love these kinds of events because it is all full of all this information and you learn all these cool, interesting facts that you're like, I never knew that about this tree or that animal or that kind of thing. So as you share these things, does that excite you too, to share this, this kind of cool information that you have about the world? Absolutely. And you just, you can sense it in people when they're learning things and they're they've never heard before and the joy they're kind of getting out of it and kind of showing that like yeah nature is enjoyable like yeah yeah. and they'll be like oh my gosh I've never been to Antelope Island before and Mm. now I'm gonna come back and it's like yay yay we did it (laughs) so okay so share with us you know one of those animal facts or one of those nature facts that you just you think is just really cool that you think people would like to hear (laughs) Uh, my favorite to talk about is owls. Owls are really fascinating animals, and um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about them. One being that a lot of people think they can turn their head all the way around. Not quite. They can turn their head 270 degrees. That's not so, all the way around. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty far, so I think um, owls are just great examples of people not really maybe knowing the exact answer, but then are pretty surprised when you tell them like, oh, it's not all the way. (laughs) You know, and that's a really interesting connection because I think a lot of things that we get, information we get about nature are through popular culture Mm -hmm. or through the news or other kinds of things. And that can breed these kinds of misconceptions Mm -hmm. that we have. But then actually seeing it or knowing these things in real life are, you know, a very different. So, you know, kind of helping us understand that information and, and get the right information. Right. Like we've all seen cartoons where the turtle like unzips his shell <laughs> yeah. and takes yeah. it off at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. And every time we take a turtle or a tortoise out to a class, the kids are like, oh, yeah, can you take off his shell? And we're like, no, it's made out of his bones. Can you take off your bones? And they're like, what? No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that people don't know is wrong just because that you're exposed to it a lot in this really low-key way and you just kind of absorb it. And so 
that's we're out there to be like, no, no. <laughs> well, and that's a huge part of literacy, right? Not only learning what you need to do, but learning the things that you've learned wrong or relearning things that you did. And so particularly for environmental literacy, I think a lot of this falls into place where we have a lot of misconceptions or we don't understand things or we have fears that may be a little irrational for some people. Um, you know, I have a, a friend who fears snakes, but she has never really interacted with a snake. You know, there's no reason that 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 fear should be there, right? It wasn't like she was bitten by a snake or anything like that, right? right? So I think it's wonderful that you bring you bring these kinds of these kinds of things in to help us to help us understand more. And it's just more than animals, right? You were talking about just being caring for our world in general and making good choices. So how do you build that kind of problem solving aspect into it? Well, we have a lot of different strategies. Like this summer, we have an exhibit going on up at the zoo called Washed Ashore, where we've brought in all of these sculptures made. They're gorgeous. Gorgeous. I saw them on the news. They're so gorgeous. Yeah, they're made by an artist. And um, what she does is she collects all of the garbage that washes up on the beach, which is sad and gross and terrible. And then she takes all these pieces of garbage from the beach and she turns them into sculptures of animals. And so having these at the zoo for the summer gives us an end to start to talk about, like, where does your trash go when you throw it away? And if it, you know, blows out of your bin on trash collection day, because I don't know about you, but like Thursday is always the windiest yeah. day of the week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where, where does it go? And it ends up somewhere. And, you know, they pull tons and tons of trash out of the Jordan River every year. And the same thing happens in the ocean. And so talking about that by using these sculptures gives us an end to be like, let's think about our garbage. And think about how we interact with the world around us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because it's so important because we don't care for it. It's not going to be here for us. And exactly. That's a very sad, sad thing. Well, thank you, ladies. This has been a joy to learn more a little bit about your jobs and the cool things that you get to do, like hold snakes and all that kind of fun stuff, and help us see that uh, we really need to be environmentally literate as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Suzanne and Erica for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with author Penny Kittle about encouraging teens to write. Then we chatted with Matt Kirby about his book series, The Dark Gravity Sequence. Our last interview was with Randy Evanson, a storyteller, and we discussed the importance of the arts. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Sarah Byington. And our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. <laughs> <laughs>